You're listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. We are a local congregation in Lexington, Kentucky, and we would love to see you join God's restoring work of love in your life. You can find out more about us at restorationlex.com slash welcome. There's helpful links about how you can grow, how you can serve, and be good news in our city. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, we're doing a, a vision series. We do this every year around this time called Restore. And we do this to remember who we are as a church, but also as a six-and-a-half-year-old church, who we're becoming as we grow, as we develop into who God has made us to be in this community, in this context, and how we're growing. Normally, it would be a time to unpack some vision and values and things, but this year we we felt like it was a good idea to go to something a little bit deeper, the kind of the foundation that all vision and all values that we hold rest upon. What we're doing is we're pursuing a shared vision for what it means to follow Jesus together. We're trying to recenter Jesus as a community and renew our commitment to follow him as a community. Because when you say Christian in a world like this, they can get a whole lot of different descriptions and answers, right? If you tell some of your coworkers or fellow classmates, I'm a Christian, the connotations of that language are often negative or often varied in their degree. So what we want as a community is a clear and compelling commitment to follow Jesus together and to be able to name what that actually looks like. We began building this vision of discipleship last week with this foundational truth of we become like Jesus by being with Jesus. To be a disciple is to be an apprentice, is to be with someone in order to become like someone. So we're being with Jesus in order to become like Jesus. This is the radical foundational invitation that you and I have received is we're not simply believing in him. We're not simply told to behave like Jesus. We are called to walk in step with him as his disciple, as his apprentice, being with him to become like him in the context of the here and the now, in the ordinary stuff of our lives. So not simply arriving, you and I, at the right doctrine, not simply achieving this new level of behavior modification that's better than everybody else. We're learning to be present to the God who is already present to us. We're learning to be with Jesus as a community in the process. We're, we're learning to become like him. Dallas Willard writes this. He says, as a disciple, I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were I. I'm not necessarily learning to do everything he did, of course, but I am learning how to do everything I do in the manner and from the source from which he did all that he did. In other words, when we become like Jesus, we're not becoming less of ourselves. We're not becoming less human the more Christian we become. In fact, following Jesus makes us more of who we are, more of who we are created to be, more fulfilled and full in our humanity. We do not become less in Christ. We become all that we hope we could be. And that change takes place not simply in what we know, we spoke about this last week, not in simply what we do, but in who we are. 
If, they, if, if we're to become like Jesus, we have to know kind of where that change begins as we continue to build this philosophy around how we are disciples. The thing that we're focusing our attention to today is that change always flows from our hearts. Now, if you have read the Bible at all, you know the Bible talks a lot about our hearts. There's something like 100 or 826 different mentions of our heart in the Scriptures. And it means something more than just that muscle in the middle of our body that pumps blood everywhere. It is the center of our desires, our emotions, our will, our intentions. That's the way that the writers of the Scriptures imagined our heart so much more than just what's in us. What is forming the very center of our identity? Proverbs 4.23 says that above all else, guard your heart. Why? Everything you do flows from it. So all of our emotions, every bit of our feelings and our desires and our intentions, they all flow out. In fact, they're already flowing out of what's in our heart right now. That's, That's kind of sobering, right? Like, your heart will already show what's in it. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You're already, I don't have to talk you into living from your heart today. You're already living and breathing and speaking and responding from what is in your heart and what is in my heart. And that, that is sobering. And I don't know about you guys, but there's some times I don't really like what comes out, right? I don't like what comes out of the heart and what I see is coming out of my own emotions and feelings and actions and desires. Words that we, we speak that we wish we did not say. Anybody done that before? Yeah. Actions that we take that we have been regretting from the moment we did it. Emotions that pour out of us without warning and explode all over everyone. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? In other words, apart from God, sin distorts our desires. It turns our emotions against us. It undermines our best of intentions. And if that wasn't bad enough, we are often, quite often completely unaware of it, right? Completely oblivious to what's happening within us. Largely unaware of the inner workings of our lives and the sickness of our soul that's just pouring out whether we like it or not and not even sure where it's coming from. So the obvious question in knowing what the Bible is telling us about our hearts is how does Jesus then change it? Well, in the church, there's largely been two distorted versions of this, or what we're going to frame it as are half-truths, because in part, they are true. The first half-truth we're looking at is that we change by learning about God. It happens in our head, and in part, this is true, because following Jesus does require the transformation of what we know and how we think about God. It requires digging into the Scriptures, wrestling with theology, with our ideas about God, with reading and studying the life of Jesus and the Gospels. All of this, I hope you know and I hope you hear, that is foundational to our faith. But when this is the complete vision, 
When this version alone of discipleship takes hold of your imagination, of my imagination, all you know is you have to learn your way into a new life. You have to believe this common spiritual fallacy. We mention this all the time around here, that information equals transformation. So if I just stuff a bunch of new podcasts and a bunch of new church sermons and a bunch of new books into my head, eventually cramming all of that in there will change my spiritual outlook. Get a new Bible study. Attend a new church. I don't know. I'm not changing So that must mean the information I'm consuming is not the right information, or it's coming from the wrong source. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Even with the best of intentions, learning about God alone does not change our heart. Now, there's another half-truth, though, that kind of flows out of this and is often, honestly, a reaction against the other. And that is the half-truth of, I change by living for God. And again, technically, true. Now, of course, we are called to seek to live like Jesus in the world around us. First John tells us that that's how we know that love has done its work, that in this world, we are like Jesus. And yet, on its own, this understanding of how we grow in Christ is often the primary recipe for disillusionment and for exhaustion. I've seen this work itself out in a couple different ways. First, there's what Dallas Willard calls the gospel of sin management. It is the belief that the primary goal of your walk with Christ is to manage and minimize your sin. So you focus every bit of your attention, all of your desire on stopping doing the bad things and only doing the good things. It is sanctified behavior modification, always focusing on upholding these moral standards of Christian values that often are what you are more concerned about than the God who offers them to you in the first place. And as you pour yourself out towards these values, towards this behavior modification, what you often find is that you slowly wither inside. Like the older brother in the prodigal son story, you are running from God just as much as your younger brother, but you're just doing it by obeying him. You're becoming a loveless and lifeless Pharisee, full of pride, spiritually empty, and the only thing that can stir you up is how many times you can point the finger at the people who are doing it wrong. I bet you all have known some people like that. I won't say, surely nobody in here has been like that but I bet you've known someone like that. Now, there is a version of this. The other version I would like to say that I would argue probably we're more prone to. This is the Christian reaction against the first half-truth, that we always are learning and taking stuff, and why don't we just go and do the stuff, man? Christians who are tired of just sitting around and talking about God and don't ever really try to make a difference in the world. Good stuff. So, so you form a vision of the Christian life that is entirely based upon taking action. So you serve. You get out and you do the stuff. You're being on mission. And this looks a whole lot better on paper than the last one, right? 
because you get stirred up about this stuff. Because these are, again, half-truths. It's what we should do. We should be on mission. We should not be contained to a room like this or what happens in a community group or in a DNA group or however we gather as a church. We should be serving in the world. You get out and you do the stuff, but what you find, if that is the primary and the only understanding of how you follow Jesus, you will be just as empty and burn out as the moralistic Pharisees. You will wear down. And despite your best of intentions and your lofty aims, you will be just as loveless and lifeless. Because our action in the name of Jesus often leaves us entirely incapable of actually just being with him. Again, with the best of intentions, it doesn't change our heart. Both of these visions of discipleship, again, are true in part, but they're not fully true. What we've learned is that changing what we know and changing what we do, while they are good, doesn't always change who we are. Time and time again, God is not simply interested in what we know, not simply interested in concern with our obedience and our action. God is after, the scriptures make it clear over and over and over and over again, God is after our hearts. He's after what's happening on the inside. Here's a way I would picture it here. Look with me on the screen. First picture here. This is what we typically begun to understand as we follow Jesus. There's, there's the head and the hands. There's what we know and there's how we live. It's our thinking and our behaving. But as we move on here to picture two, changing what we know and changing how we live doesn't always change who we are. So we change those things, but that doesn't get to beneath the surface of what's actually happening in our lives. We change what we know and do without Jesus. All of this is accomplishable with Jesus still in the grave. This is a Christianity that can be fully and finally completed with a dead Jesus. But picture three shows us that God's calling us to something deeper. Beneath the surface of the core of who we are, because what we know and how we live flows from our hearts. And here's what's hard. It's a whole lot easier to measure how much I know. And it's a whole lot easier to measure how much I do. So I can think I'm growing by growing in knowledge. I can think I'm growing by doing more things. It is measurable and understandable. And it's why you and I would prefer that's where we stay in our conversations of spiritual formation. But it's a lot harder to know what's happening in our hearts, right? It is difficult to understand. I would rather, most of the time, focus on cramming more knowledge about God into my head and doing more stuff for God than having to look underneath the surface and see there's a lot of wounds that I've never worked it through. There are emotions that I'm uncomfortable dealing with. Words and works, believing and behaving, those are a lot easier and a lot less scary than looking at what's happening here. So much of what's happening in us is, is almost impossible to know 
on our own. And the Bible recognizes that as we look to our heart, we need help beyond ourselves in seeing what is taking place. Psalm 139, David prays this at the end. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a cry both for God knowledge and self-knowledge. David isn't asking God to search and to know what God doesn't already know. God knew David's heart. What David is praying in this moment is, God, search me and know me because as I come to know you, that's how I come to know me. As I dig into the thoughts and the intentions of my own heart, not only do I come to see you more clearly, you help me see me in a way that I could not see on my own. This is the heart behind our current short-term study, Emotionally Healthy spirituality that we're doing. It's been meeting upstairs at 9.30 here before the service each week. You're all going to think that I planned doing this sermon based upon what you talked about today in the video. I did not, but it is exactly the same thing, basically. In this book, Pete Scazzaro talks about how as a pastor for many years, his emotional health began to take a toll not only on his family, but on his church. His emotional immaturity was doing damage in every single area of his life. I mean, the the tagline of the book alone is a sermon. It says it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. I could just hang up and go home right now. Like, that's, that's a word. It is a convicting and life-changing book. He writes in here, he says, Like most Christians today, I was taught that feelings are unreliable and not to be trusted. They go up and down, and they're the last thing we should be attending to in our spiritual lives, but that's an incorrect view. When we deny our pain, losses, and feelings year after year, we become less and less human. We transform slowly into empty shells and smiley faces painted on them. Sad to say, this is the fruit of much of our discipleship in our churches. But when I began to allow myself to feel a wider range of emotions, including sadness, depression, fear, and anger, a revolution in my spirituality was unleashed. I soon realized that a failure to appreciate the biblical place of feelings within our larger Christian lives has done extensive damage, keeping free people in Christ in slavery. Whew. I used to think that talking about this stuff was at worst heretical and at best a distraction from the real stuff. Talking about me, focusing on my inner world was somehow presented as not focusing on God. So for many, many years of my life, like Pete, I utterly ignored this part of me. I pushed it away. I saw it as a distraction from the real work of God that happened in my head or happened through my hands. I have seen, just like Pete, how emotional immaturity, 
how not paying attention to my inner world wreaks havoc where you are and with who you are and how you lead. What I used to see as a distraction from the real, real work, I now see, though, as the real work of spiritual growth, as the real place in which Christ meets us, in my emotions, in my fears, in my failures, in my struggles and anxiety. And if you feel like those are emotions that you don't feel comfortable expressing to God, I would invite you to open your Bibles to the Psalms, which are one-third laments, complaints, questions, stuff that would make you blush if you prayed in real life. There's a whole book called Lamentations. Lamentations is laments, complaints to God. God is secure enough in His love for us that He allows that much of the Scriptures to be directed at Him in complaint and questions. What a beautiful and loving God that is so committed to our wholeness that he allows every generation of believer to have language to complain to him, to throw out what we really, really feel. So if we are going to be like Jesus by being with Jesus, when we are with Jesus, we have to learn to bring our whole selves to God and not, not just the parts that we like, not just the parts that are presentable. We're giving God access to emotions and feelings and wants and hurts that maybe we have never felt permission to do before, and we're doing that with the confidence that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Hebrew says that we come boldly before the throne of grace with confidence so we can have help in our time of need. Instead of God turning away from our emotions and affections and desires and longings, that turns out is where he is longing to meet us. Maybe this seems strange or difficult as you hear it today, so I want to close with three encouragements because I know where I was when I first encountered how empty I was in this part of my life and I needed as much help as I get. So just quickly, three encouragements before we close. The first one is this. Practice paying attention. Pay attention to what you are feeling and how you are feeling it and when you are feeling it. As many folks I know who have come to our church have experiences in the past that were not very good with the body of Christ, I've watched as when you walk into a door like this, sometimes bodies tense up. People who have served in communities like this before, who are used to the knockdown, drag out of Sunday mornings and always being afraid that they're doing something wrong, find it difficult in their bodies to even relax in a moment like this because what they have learned internally, they've never been able to express externally. So we are practicing as a community, learning to pay attention to what we feel and how we feel it, noticing both the sadness and the joy. Notice the way that your body feels and speaks before your mind and your heart can often understand. Have you ever had that happen before where you tense up and you just don't know why? Pay attention. Why am I losing it on my kids? 
Why do my shoulders tense up when I'm around this certain kind of people? Why am I feeling sad and lonely and I just don't know why? What if that's not a distraction from God, but the place in which he's actually trying to meet you? These are the questions that opens up what God is actually doing in us. Secondly, approach yourself with compassionate curiosity. I love this language. Learned from my friend Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. We, many of us have done discipleship training with them. Compassionate curiosity comes because as we come to dig into our emotions and the desires of our hearts, the, the things that we often find are rough, right? It's like when you start cleaning your house and then you clean only to find how much more you need to clean, right? And then if you clean that room, it's like, well, I got to clean that room too. Crap. Like, and over and over again, the more you begin digging into your emotions and what's actually happening in your heart, you see places, and you can get really down on yourself. And so come and approach yourself with compassionate curiosity. Be curious about what's happening and come with compassion because God has compassion for you. And if God has compassion for you where you actually are, then why won't you have compassion for you where you actually are? Are you bigger than God? God meets you in that compassion so you can allow yourself, as you uncover what's happening in you, to meet yourself with compassionate curiosity. We can do so, again, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Pay attention to what's happening and do it with compassion. Finally, trust that God restores what is broken. This one is important. We are learning, I would say, as a church how to pay more attention to our mental health, our spiritual health, and how all of these things are together, looking at our inner world, allowing God access to our emotions. It is very easy, though, for this to become a spiritualized navel-gazing, where we just sit around and talk about what's wrong all the time. This can easily become kind of a pop psychology dead end that just leaves us without hope. The reason God wants access to our heart is not just to show what is there, but to heal what is there. We cannot make brokenness more normative than healing. We cannot make sin more normative than restoration. The reason why this church is named Restoration is because we believe the testimony of the Scriptures is that God is restoring all things. And all things means you. And so as we begin to dig and look with this compassionate curiosity, do not allow the enemy to get in your head and give you condemnation. Allow this moment to be an opportunity to know what God reveals, God can heal. What God opens up, God can restore. What is broken can be made whole. Let this church be named aptly by a place that not only can see and name and have the courage to say these wounds, but a church that says, I'm on my way to healing. I'm on my way to restoration. I'm on my way to wholeness. This is the testimony of the scriptures. I love this, Philippians 1.6. Here's the voice translation. It says, I am confident that the creator who has begun such good work among you, will not stop in mid-design, but keep perfecting you until the day that Jesus, the anointed, our liberating king, returns to redeem the world. What this promise is telling us 
is that what we are moving towards in our story is the wholeness that Jesus promised. He says in Revelation 21, as the Bible is culminating in the end, I am making everything new. Everything includes you. So what God began in you, what God reveals in you, he's moving towards wholeness. He is moving towards healing. So I close today as we move into a time of response and communion of asking you, how is your heart? Do you even know? Is this an uncomfortable morning because you're being forced to think about things that you didn't want to think about? Is this an uncomfortable morning because you have always seen this as a side project to the real stuff? Or maybe this is an opportunity for the first time or maybe, again, afresh to bring your heart, your whole self to God. We respond every single week in communion as a remembrance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. What we celebrate every week in these simple little cups of juice and cracker is that God in Christ has reconciled himself to us, that we are united with him through his cross, by his blood, by his broken body, and there is wholeness. We can weekly, physically taste and see the goodness of God and reconciling the world to himself. And not only do we recognize that we are are reconciled to God, but what we remember today is we are reconciled to one another, this beautiful, wild, misfit family called church, full of a bunch of wounded, but on that way to healing people in a room like this. So I encourage you as we move into this time of worship and response, you can take elements here on the table. There's some in the back on the table. There's some in the lobby as well. You don't have to participate, but we encourage you to. And I just want to say today, this is table is open. If you have always felt unworthy, this is what God has given you to show you that you have been made worthy in Christ. Receive it. Receive it. Receive it. If that's the first time today, we would love to pray with you and help you take that step of faith. But let me pray for us as we close. Father, speaking into where we actually are, speaking into wounds and stories and struggles that we often are incapable of seeing ourselves. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, first this morning just for fresh revelation of allowing us, like David prayed, to see our hearts in ways that we have not seen them before. May we be reminded as we are with you today, as you are present with us, that we don't have to perform, we don't have to work anything up. We can just be present to the God who is already present to us. So help us respond today. Thank you for the work of your son in our our lives, that sin was paid for, that sin was purchased, that sin was fully and finally taken care of in Christ by his cross so that we can know healing is possible in every single ounce of our bodies and our minds and our spirits, our whole selves in Christ. May we respond to you in Jesus' name.